0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Coram Deo Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life and today we're talking about cultural apologetics.
1: Don't worry, we're not going to do a deep dive into the subject of cultural apologetics. We're going to try to keep it very accessible, but uh, it is a, a topic I want us to visit here on this podcast before we get to that snacks mm, snacks we got them i like snacks bethany shout out
0: to allison listener allison who brought us some scotcheroos and some checks mix
2: both very tasty
1: delicious yeah. salty and sweet yeah in fact there's gonna be a lot left over we have to share with the rest of the team so it's gonna, ex- its bounty is gonna extend. It's gonna cascade beyond the Wednesday conversation to all who inhabit this building today. Mm-hmm. So that's good.
3: For I them. will just say, like scotcheroos are like one of my top desserts.
0: Right, I feel just like love them. Everybody love them. loves scotcheroos.
1: Also, there's a few listeners who really hate when we talk about snacks and dogs. I don't know why. You either apparently people either love us talking why? about dogs or they really are like, hey, could you guys just stick we to never like never talk theology? about
2: dogs again? <laughs> because Man.
1: but listen, we're gonna have maybe to maybe they make, just feel
3: convicted. They haven't brought snacks.
1: They probably do. We're yeah. going to have to make some listeners angry today because apparently Chris got another dog. We did. And, and I want to hear the story about how you how can you handle having two dogs at once? That's, I it's mean, I know people that, do I mean, this, I've been
2: asking myself that question. Is it the uh, same, same breed? Same breed. She's a mini though.
1: So you have she's a regular golden doodle and a mini golden doodle. That. Yeah.
2: But she's going to be on the bigger end of a mini. So she'll get about 40 to 45 pounds.
1: How old is the other dog? She. Or, I mean, sorry. How big is the other dog?
2: She's about 65. Oh, wow. Whoa.
1: Because my full size Golden Doodle is only about forty five pounds. Yeah, so.
2: our our standard. She's she's a big girl. Her, her <laughs> is it because uh, you overfeed her? No, her You're mom was her mom was like close to seventy pounds. So she's just a big on the bigger end. They can get up to hundred pounds apparently. Yeah, so, my
0: neighbors had one that was like hundred and
3: ten. Yeah, dude, my neighbor's that's a Doodle big, is that's, that's a beast. big fella. Hey, uh, is this impulse purchase? What where are we doing here? <laughs> yeah, <what happened?
2: laughs> sort of. So the end of February, my mom texts me. And she asked me if we had any interest in getting another dog. And she, she sent me a picture of our current dog, uh, or the dog that we just got. Um, she's from the same, same breeder that we got our first dog from. She was one of the last of her litter. And so what this breeder does is they go half price when they're like the last two. She's like, Hey, this dog is half price, any interest. And we were about ready to hit like a super busy season. Like, sorry, maybe someday, not today. Uh, so a few weeks later, my mom Text me another picture, which it looks like the same dog, but it's in my aunt's house. And I'm like, Did you buy that dog? <laughs> and she's like, Yeah. And they're gonna bring it down to me when, when my aunt was gonna go visit her in a few weeks. And she's like, you know, I I just wanted to get her. And if you change your mind, you c- you can have her, but no pressure. I'll just keep her if you don't want her. And I was like, and, and Mindy, like immediately, she's like, We are not gonna get that dog. <laughs> that dog, we just like sort of like drew this line the same. We're not gonna get this dog. So had no intention. So Uh, A few weeks ago, I went down to visit my mom and did not intend to bring a dog back. Um, (laughs) But you did, and
1: yet, here we are. (laughs) Here we are. So I get
2: down there, and Mindy was out of town at a a deal, so I took our dog down, and we just went down for a few days, and I see this dog, and I'm like, I text Mindy, and I'm like, hey, if you were here, you'd probably want to bring her back. But she's like, ah, we just can't do this, can we? And so she's like, but send me pictures. Send me more pictures. (laughs) Oh,
3: done. There it is. So over.
2: Again, well, here's what's funny. So I'm I'm going to, I have to preach that Sunday. So I'm going to leave my mom's house at two on Saturday. She lives about eight hours away. And I am literally 30 seconds out the door, like packed up, ready to go, not going to bring this dog home. And as often happens, just as you're about ready to leave, you fall into a deep conversation. So my mom and I get in this deep conversation. Next thing I know, it's like three, 3 PM. I look at my phone and Mindy had text me some things. And one of the things was like, I really thought you were going to call me up and try to talk me into this. And I'm just like, are we really doing this? So I call her up and we talk for a little while. And the next thing you know, we're like, all right, let's bring her home. <laughs> so wow. it turned into kind of a weird impulse thing. But she's great. She's, she, I mean, What she's is this dog's for, name? Uh, Georgie. So Georgiana, but we call her Georgie. Mm.
0: Love it.
1: Is Georgie, is Anna her middle name or the whole name is Georgiana? <laughs> Georgiana. Georgiana. Yeah. Very so, Southern. It's a lot of vowels. It's a lot of Southern yeah. Southern so
2: my wife is a huge Jane Austen fan. Okay. And sure. Her favorite. There it is. Her favorite. Well, I think Emma's her favorite story, but she's also a big Pride and Prejudice fan. Mm. And in Pride and Prejudice, Mister Darcy's sister is Georgiana. Wow. And so that's where the name came from.
0: I always wanted to get a dog and name it Mister Bingley.
2: There you go, Mister mm. Bingley. That's a good dog name. I like that. I'm gonna keep that one. It's a good story. throw <laughs> that one away.
3: I like it. I like it.
2: But uh, the nice thing is, is she's four months. She's pretty much house broke, So we, we didn't have to do as much work on that end.
1: What are your two dogs doing while you're sitting here in the podcast studio?
2: <laughs> or yeah, <laughs> they just like destroying- that one
1: year house or what? Are no, they- one okay.
2: of them. So, so Georgie is, we have kind of an Eden area in our, in our house. And so we just kind of pinned her up in that. And then Rue, our four and a half year old, she's just probably chilling on the couch. Wow. The one couch she can get on. We have three couches. She can only get on
1: one. Yeah, when you're not there, she's on the other two. That's what I want yeah. you to know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, she's living on your couches when you're up. not home. I tried to do that. I thought I thought my dog would only get on one piece of furniture, but you can't. I'm not convinced you can. You do don't that. really know. Yeah, I'm not convinced you know. I think the dog's well, smarter the, than you. And they're like, "Oh, you're leaving? Cool. I'm going to go." The whatever. cool thing about the mini
3: is like our mini is just like after you have the full size Doodle, then you have a mini. You're just like, dude, you can do whatever you want. Like, you can go yeah, on the couch, you're whatever. so small. Yeah. That's like a whole episode on dog. Uh, Chris's new dog, right there. Did you know that? This we
0: is a dog podcast. Well, we'll
3: see you next Wednesday did for
1: you, another. <laughs> did you want to talk again about when your dog died? No, I was going to
3: talk. Can to we you bring back that
2: back up? <laughs> are you are you doing okay with that?
1: Actually, yeah, we're <laughs> so. We're wait, fine. wait. Now, thanks for thanks for not asking but telling. I like how you you used to have two dogs, but now that you only have one dog, you're giving Chris a hard time for having I know. two dogs. That's how
2: that's, long did you have two dogs?
1: Seems a little
3: hypocrite. Uh, <laughs> not very long. I <laughs> have two dogs for like 4 months.
2: Okay. Well, we will probably have two dogs for Yeah. Can we talk, barring anything happening, probably for about 8 years.
1: Can we talk about cultural apologetics now or you just yeah. want to turn this into a dog <laughs> podcast? Please, please turn
3: the corner cuz somebody's somebody already clicked off, you know. They're like dogs. They're like dogs, snacks, whatever. I'm out of here.
1: Okay, so uh, as you may know, I am a fellow of the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, which is a ministry of the Gospel Coalition, kind of a new little Think tank slash uh, resource producing group that uh, was recently brought together, and the <laughs> the biggest question I've got is, what is that? Yeah, what are we, <laughs> what are we talking, talking about? What is there? that? What do you do? What could this, the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics? So, I want to try to help the average Christian understand the work of cultural apologetics. What is that? And more importantly, why does it matter? Why would we want to be doing some work in this area? And what does it mean for us to um, care, pray for, encourage work being done in this area? I guess there are a few ways into this. One is just to say, if you are familiar with uh, Tim Keller, the easiest way to understand cultural apologetics is just to say, it's the stuff Tim Keller does. Um, It's what we appreciate about Keller's preaching and writing, which is that he, he applies the gospel and the scriptures to the ways our culture tends to think, the assumptions we tend to have. He's good at unpacking those assumptions, deconstructing those assumptions, helping people see how they they come from somewhere and how the gospel either subverts them or completes them. So one way to understand cultural politics is just to say, that's the stuff Keller does. Another way to understand it is to say, it's helping Christians start from a place of analysis of cultural narratives around us. So if you want to use a biblical studies analogy, think about the book of Revelation. Apocalyptic literature in the Bible is, some commentators refer to it as unmasking. It's the idea of take, getting behind the narratives and the stories cultures tell and saying, what's really going on here? And so, you know, in Revelation, you have all this symbolic imagery, the beast, the false prophet, the harlot, These are all imagery-driven ways of describing power, uh, affluence, seduction, the, the nature of what cultures create and the forces that are present in them that tend to erode or work against Christian faith. And so in a similar way, though revelation is applicable to every Christian at every time and is just sort of a way of thinking about, hey, we need to be aware of what are the things in the world that seduce us, That try to destroy us, that work against the church. You can also think about that specific to cultures. What are the things for Americans that are uniquely narratives that shape us and that we believe and that tend to either defeat our belief in the gospel, complicate our belief in the gospel, corrupt our belief in the gospel? You know, so the one I use frequently is just to say, like, take a concept like freedom in America. So you read the Bible and you read, you know, uh, Christ has set us free from the yoke of slavery, or you read, you know, texts like, you know, Galatians, if, if the son has set you free, you're free indeed. And we hear the language of free and freedom in a certain way as Americans, because again, this is deeply held convictional values for our culture. We think about independence, freedom, you know, we celebrate it. <laughs> we have a holiday built around it. It's part of our cultural dialogue and narrative. It goes all the way back to the revolution freedom has a certain register and means certain things to Americans that may or may not be what the bible means when it talks about freedom and so the easiest way to you know think about the difference is Americans tend to think only about being free from stuff right free from tyranny free from taxation <laughs> free from you know government interference free to carry a gun wherever i want free to you know put up on my walls whatever i want have whatever bumper stickers on my car that i want free to Define my gender, however, we just tend to think like more and more freedom from. We tend not to ask the question, what are we free for? What obligations do we have? What responsibilities are now given to us because of being free? But the Bible would ask all those questions. So as we talk about biblical freedom, we kind of have to deconstruct what America, the register that takes to an American listener. Whereas if you're preaching the gospel in a different culture, probably you don't have to do that same kind of work. Um, or the work looks different. So the work of cultural apologetics is trying to get specific about the cultural defeaters to the gospel and how we identify and deconstruct those. And there's also a positive aspect to it of showing us how actually most of the values we hold most deeply come to us either from common grace, natural law, or from the heritage of Christianity. You know, like, man, actually freedom, the way we enjoy it in America is a fruit of the gospel's work in the world over lots and lots of centuries that has helped us embrace the fact that men human beings should be free from tyranny free from oppression free from you know like freedom is a good thing. So that's a broad way of thinking the work of cultural apologetics. And a few weeks ago I got to I got to be in New York City and doing some sort of initial work with that cohort of fellows around some of those conversations, some of those questions, some of the things that we want to sort of think through and work on for the sake of the church over the next few years.
2: So I have a couple questions for you. One, are you personally, do you have a, a particular niche within that that you're focusing on? Or are you kind of just tackling things a little more broadly and kind of what comes along or what do you get assigned? Or how, how are you, what kind of work are you doing personally in that?
1: Have you seen the Saturday Night Live sketch with more cowbell? Uh, yes, I'm yes. just playing the cowbell in the band. <laughs> okay. And I'm hoping that they'll be like, Hey, more cowbell. Cause I can't sing. I can't play the drums. I don't play the electric guitar. I'm just, yeah. I'm just the guy wailing on the cowbell. So I'm saying that to say, actually, the people in the room are some of the best scholars and thinkers, uh, writing and doing work in this area. What I'm trying to contribute and being asked to contribute is a couple of things. One is a focus on the local church. So how can we help make sure these things are applicable and, and work in the local church? And then thinking about preaching. So, you know, Mm -hmm. the primary thing I do, one of the things, if you ask like, what is, what has been most impactful about the ministry of people like Tim Keller? Most people would say his preaching, his writing came later, but a lot, I have met a lot of people who are like, man, I, I podcasted Tim Keller and it changed the way I thought about the Bible. So the, particularly the sort of asking the question, how do we train preachers and help those who preach the Bible? learn how to do this work as they preach and in their preaching. That's probably, that will probably be a specific part of what I focus on. And then others among the fellows will focus in sort of the areas that are areas of expertise for them. Some of them are writers, some of them are podcasters, some of them are uh, evangelists. And so there's sort of different niches that that people have specialties in.
2: So my second question is, as you guys met and had these conversations, I'm curious if, if any sort of themes emerged of like, hey, we're we're kind of behind the eight ball in these issues. The most work needs to be done in these issues. Did, did any things kind of emerge in that regard?
1: Yes. Um, we identified six preliminary areas of focus. I don't think these will be the only things we think about, but these will be sort of the first six of like, all right, here's six preliminary places we want to give some energy and attention. Let me, let me list them for you. Number one, preaching Christ in a post-Christendom era. So that's the one i'm that I and a few other people are primarily focused on is how do we how do we keep training pastors to preach Christ in a post Christian world? Second, telling a better story about sexuality and gender. So you notice there's two aspects of that there's sort of the just the basic biblical sexual ethic. but then how do we tell a better story about that? How do we help impart that story in a way that's mm. compelling and winsome? yeah. Because it's not just that we need to have a Christian sexual ethic. We need to tell the better story that we have to tell there. Third, discerning media ecology and artificial intelligence. So this one's fascinating to me because it's like, you know, this is where everything's, all the energy right now is on AI and the question of like, how's it going to change things? How should we be thinking about things like social media? Some of the podcasts we've had here about how smartphones are shaping us, all the media ecology, that whole environment of things. Fourth. Modeling evangelism and collaboration with non Christians. So basically, how can we lean, lean into common grace and model collaboration with non Christians in places where we should be doing this? So that there's so one of the things you notice in culture is like oppositional, right? We're Christians and everybody else is, you know, should be a Christian, but otherwise we're going to treat them like they're evil. And one of the things we want to say is, no, we're all human beings. And so there's actually a lot of places where we ought to be showing forth the kind of collaboration humanity um love and and collaboration among Christians and non-Christians in areas where we can make common cause on things so that's one uh fifth bridging the teenage to young adult years so thinking about how do you go from childhood to adulthood mm. both as just a social question of like where does our culture need help there and as a church and and catechism kind of question how do we help the church do a better job with people from the ages of about 13 to 30 in discipleship and and that kind of thing. And then six, this one will resonate with you, identifying and engaging world visions. So this is new terminology, new to me anyway. I'm used to hearing about worldview. Christians have done a lot of work in the area of worldview for a long time. The neo-Calvinist tradition talks instead about world visions, which is a little more like Charles Taylor's social imaginary. It has mm-hmm. It's a little yeah. less cognitive and a little more having to do with our whole embodied life yeah. in the world. And so some of the work we want to do is to move the conversation away from, do you have a Christian worldview toward what would it mean to have a Christian world vision Yeah, um, in the sense of not just what do I think, but how is my whole life shaped by a paradigm that's biblical? How does the Lordship of Christ over everything sort of shape the way I inhabit the world. And so I think that will be helpful um, to the church to have a a fuller picture there.
2: Yeah. And one of the best thinkers on that is Bobbing's nephew. Yes. Uh, JH. Yes. Yes. So that's uh, somehow Chris gets it back. I mean, I'm always going to drop the B the Bob bring the Bob. (laughs) Hey, so
3: I'm, I'm curious about the teenage to adulthood one. I love that one. How does it, but it also kind of surprises me. For some reason, so how well, did,
1: how did that one get on the whiteboard? So it's rooted in. There's a prod. There's a book coming out uh, later this summer called "The Great Dechurching" uh, by Mike Graham, who's the the director of the Keller Center. And Mike's done a ton of research work on basically all the data about dechurching. And so he analyzed the data a hundred different ways. And one of the things we learned from that data is dechurching is obviously greater the younger you get. Right. So, like, you know, it's like, if you look at it, it's like not not a ton of boomers, some Generation X people, more millennials. And then, like, the place where it's the biggest problem is in the youngest generations. And so, if we want to ask the question, how do we stem the tide of de churching? We have to ask, why are 22, 24, 30 year olds leaving the church? What are we missing there? Because it's not happening as much among 50 year olds, but it's happening a ton among sort of younger populations. And so, this is both the catechism question of like, how do we get our own kids through the journey to adulthood? But it's also a question of how do we help the church evangelize and disciple in this area of the culture where it's like those years where people are, you know, usually departing their family, trying to figure out who they are, establishing themselves in the world, and where in that age range, you see more and more de church. The de churching statistics are, are most stark there. And so that was one thing. But it's also really, I mean, this data is really interesting, and the, I think the book will generate a lot of interesting conversation because there's actually some really fascinating um, learnings from the data that are sort of like, huh, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have guessed that. Like, like literally, Mike Graham did a he did a summary of the data for us um, when we were in New York, and he said something like twenty percent of people who dechurch, it's literally just they would go to church tomorrow if someone just invited them. Yeah, Like when yeah. they asked the wow. question on the survey, like what would make you go back to church? The answer was just like, oh, just someone inviting me. Like it's just like literally your neighbors are like, y'all yeah, go to church. You just need to invite. So he's like, hey, there's like a ton of people out there. You think that like it's like secular soil, you know, no one wants to be a Christian. Actually, it's just if you'd invite somebody to church, they'd probably go. And so, you know, knowing that data is like, well, that really changes how we think about our work in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces, just to say, like, I don't have to answer everybody's apologetic questions. Maybe I just need to say, Hey, Chris, do you want to go <laughs> You're interested in going to church? And that might be a starting point. So there's some really interesting learnings that will come out of that data.
3: So that's kind of the, what, how does that, I'm just curious when you land in New York, do you just like at the end of the week, curate that stuff? Is Keller bringing it to you? Is Colin Hanson bringing it to you?
1: Graham? Like, how's this stuff get to the white Man, it was a fun week in New York, you guys. We we spent three full days in New York so and then a, a day of travel on either side. So I was gone for five days, but three days on the ground in New York City, three and a half days. And, um, yeah, it was – I mean, the people in the room are such experts in their own right and so intelligent and in tune with this stuff. It's sort of like you just get those people in the room, conversations are going to happen. You know, nobody's sitting around going like, what movie did you see last week? They're sitting <laughs> around going like, hey, so how do we tackle this problem? And how should we – you know, how do we help – export some of the Neo-Calvinist thought on this thing. It's just people are like, that's the kind of conversations that are happening. So yes, Colin Hansen and Mike Graham kind of teed up some of the important conversations that they thought like we needed to start with. And some of it was just like getting to know each other. You know, there's 24 of us and so a lot of us hadn't met yet. And so some of it was just building some camaraderie and some fellowship. But then yeah, we basically just said, um, hey, let's identify what are what are some of the key areas that we need to start working on. And within a couple of days those those areas sort of crystallized. It was pretty clear like there's kind of six clusters of focus, both of the expertise of the people in the room and also of the work that um that kind of feels like it needs to be done right now. And yeah, we did. I mean, Tim had just gotten finished with cancer treatment in Maryland, so he actually w- didn't get to New York until the last day we were there and his health was such that he it wasn't wise for him to come be with us so he did uh facetime with us and we talked via you know technology and sort of he just spoke into hey here's here's the work i think we need to be thinking about and focused on but what's fascinating is uh you know he just generates a lot of thought and a lot of ideas and so he's always his mind is always working and he's so good at sort of identifying who in the room is good at stuff and saying hey we need to put some more energy behind this project or that project and this question or that question. And so it's really, you know, (laughs) Tim had already sort of said like, Hey, on the preaching thing, here's what I think, you know, here's some of the things I think we need to be thinking about and here's a couple ideas I'm working on and here's a document from my hard drive that kind of helps to frame it out. So he, there are ways in which I think part of what we will be doing is just taking stuff that is sort of like in there in his consciousness and that he's sort of framed up and just saying, how do we, apply that. One of the interesting projects I was telling somebody about is uh, work on a new children's catechism that I think will really change in a good way how we're discipling kids. Meaning, we got to help kids identify cultural messaging. If you think about the gap with our kids, it's like New City Catechism is great because it teaches them the Bible in 52 weeks. You know, basic Christian theology. What it's not doing is helping them identify what's the culture say about Mm -hmm the self what's the culture say about autonomy what does the culture say about happiness like just helping kids at a very childlike level understand hey here's what the world around us is saying about this and here's how what the bible says is different now if they're in a good church where that's how the preaching works maybe they're picking some of that up but it is important that we help kids be able to just like know how to go to school and say oh yeah that's that message and i understand that the that a lot of people think that but that's not what the bible says you know yeah,
3: it's even interesting to think about teaching kids you're creating the image of God and then instead of moving on to the next question, now we need to actually teach them how to be embodied.
1: Right, yeah. Those kinds of embodied things, yeah. There's a lot of that stuff that's just like, yep. There's And, and we all identified, you know, the questions the culture is asking now are different than 10 years ago. And so there's a way that cultural apologetics sort of always needs to be moving with the right, with the questions that are present right now. You know, you think about uh, transgenderism and gender identity that's like the biggest question in the world right now that question was really small 10 years ago it was there but it certainly did not have the cultural influence and power that it does now where it's kind of on everybody's mind all the time because everybody knows somebody who's asking that question and so there's just ways that this work of cultural apologetics always needs to sort of be asking what is what are the questions or the narratives in the culture and how do we apply the gospel to them in a meaningful way
2: so did you guys all leave with like concrete tasks, like say, hey, Bob, in the next six months, you're X, Y, Z, or is it kind of, hey, here's some areas, explore this more, get back to us?
1: Yeah, there um, there, was, there was a few things that were real concrete. There was no like, hey, here's my here's the tasks I'm working on for the next six months. Um, but there were so, there's some projects that are like, all right, these projects are in various places in flight. And then we will sort of iterate them forward a step at a time. A lot of it is it too, like, A lot of people are already working on stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's books getting ready to come out. There's people who are writing manuscripts on things. And so it's just like, how do we just continue to sort of put momentum behind some of that work to help the church in cultural projects? So a lot of people are already, there's like projects in flight and we're just trying to say, cool, you're doing that. Great. Let me help. Let me get the word out about that. And let me, you know, can I get an advanced copy of the book so I can read it and so we can speak into it and so we can help to make it, you know, available to people who want it, those kinds of things.
0: It was your first time in New York City, right? It was. And how was it, <laughs>
1: man, Bethany? You've been there a few times. Yeah. I loved New York City. It was awesome. I came back and I was like, I think I could like living there. <laughs> really? Here's what I realized. Yeah, because here's what I realized. It's a very dense place, and it's you know it's kind of overwhelming as far as just how many people there are and how you know how urban the city is. But I'd spend just as much. time time driving every day in Omaha as I would have spent walking or on the subway in New York City. Like, it's just like, actually life is not any more complicated. It's just different. The way you get around is different. You know, the amount of people you're interacting with is different. But I felt like it felt healthier because I walked everywhere. (laughs) Yep. And I was like, actually it didn't take any more time to get anywhere than than it would take me to get in my car and drive to a coffee shop. Instead, I just walked down the street and went around the corner and there was a coffee shop. And it was, you know, it's just... We're so used to an automobile-centric life where we live in the country, and New York's a very walkable city. It's a very public transit city. It's a dense place, and it's it's really fun. It's there's there's a there's an energy to it, and sort of a like a joy to it that was I really enjoyed,
3: even though it's like super dense and there's a lot of people.
1: My introverted friends love it. Yeah, because hey, and this is I had to learn how to walk in New York City. Head down. <laughs> well, it wasn't so. Michael Keller, Tim's son explain this to me. We were, we were walking through Times Square and he was like, Hey, uh, you kind of got lost in that sea of people right there. And I was like, yeah, how do I not do that? And he's like, well, (laughs) here's what you do. You look at the sidewalk about ten feet in front of you. Yeah. Because that way, the people who are walking at you know where you're trying to go, and they're just going to move out of that spot. He's like, I can't explain why it works, but if you just look at the sidewalk ten feet in front of you, the person walking toward you can tell where you're looking, and they will just walk next to that spot instead of over that spot. He's like, that's how we do it. And I was like, and I started doing that. I was like, man, he's right. It works. I don't know why. That's like mountain
3: biking. You always looking ahead of you. You never look down.
1: Yeah, it's it was, so there was some tricks to hanging out and also lots of weed in New York. So yes, much so weed bad. everywhere. Also lots of crazy people on the subway. I mean, people yes, like people yes. like yelling profanity. I mean, not every time you're on the subway, but there's a few times you're on the subway. You're like, well, we need to get off now. Cause this guy is not, <laughs> does not seem like the kind of person I want to be underground trapped in a train car with. So <laughs> there was a few moments that are just weird, not like scary weird, but just like, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable. Yeah. A you little know. different. Um, uh, also, this was one of the cool things. My grandfather was a naval aviator in World War II. He flew off of an aircraft carrier, the USS Intrepid, which is now parked in New York Harbor, and it is now the Intrepid Air and Space Museum. So I got to walk over there and like see the same aircraft carrier that my grandfather like lived oh, on yeah. for a year of his life, very cool. which was really cool. Yeah, there was just some
2: neat things about that. That's Sweet. What uh, was the best place you ate? Man, my answer
1: that I ate at a steakhouse and it was a super good steak, but that's such a lame answer because like we have that in Omaha.
2: Yeah, nothing unusual. Nothing I ate like, like
1: I mean I, I I ate a bagel. I went to this bagel shop <laughs> that's like uh, around the corner from where we stayed, and you know it's a it's in it's a Jewish neighborhood in New York. It's like yeah, of course they have great bagels, but it was just like that Seinfeld episode with the soup Nazi, where the <laughs> yeah. the dude was like, "Hey, do you know what you want?" And I was like staring at the menu, and I was like, "No, I'm still deciding." <laughs> And he just was like, he. I think he immediately realized you're not from here. And so he just told me what I should get. He was like, we have bagels. He, no, he was like, <laughs> "The everything with chive is pretty good. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. He was like, thank you. Yeah, because yeah. you could see that I was just paralyzed in this moment of like, I don't know what I should
3: do here. Any good pizza? Do you have some New York pizza? The I people, like New York pizza. The, the people I was
1: with did, and I failed to do that. And it was because we had... We had meals planned every night, and I did. I, there was not a moment where I was hungry enough in between meals where I was like, "I'm just gonna go get some pizza." But I—that was the one thing I lamented when I got home. Was like, I never ate a slice of pizza in New York, and. I didn't do the Michael Scott thing where I went to the Sbarro <laughs> <The
2: Sibaro.
1: laughs> <laughs> to eat the pizza. Uh, yeah. But everybody keep bringing up that meme. Like, this is what I'm thinking of right now is getting New York slice.
2: What about like a, a coffee shop? Like a, any unique coffee shops or good coffee?
1: Three very good ones within walking distance of where I was staying. Of course. Yeah. Which is like one unfair. 60th of the city. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. it was just, yeah, it's unbelievable. There's good stuff. That's what I realized is like to be in New York. You got to be good at what you do or you're not going to make it. So everything's good. Coffee shops are good. Restaurants are good. Like nothing is bad there because it's just like you can't afford to pay the bills there if people aren't going to come to your place. So that was, uh, yeah, lots of good food, good coffee, good everything really. How often are you going there? You're going back. We are going to get together once a year. I don't know if it will always be in New York. Um, It may be. That may be just- It's Omaha. Omaha next year. Are they
0: going to come to Omaha next?
1: Yeah. Hey, I did experience the whole like- flyover state syndrome. Oh um, yeah. Where I was like people are like, Hey, where are you, where are you from? And I was like, Omaha. And they would like you would see the blank look in their eyes, like, I don't know where that is. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, they like everything <laughs> <like>, would <with joy." laughs> They're like where I don't know. You could see like their eyes just kind of lit. they had that look that said, I actually don't have any idea where that is.
2: <laughs> Isn't that the thing Peyton Manning yells when he I did football? have that conversation. <laughs> yeah. County Crows.
1: And they were like,
3: Yeah. County Crows, Peyton Manning, the zoo. That's it.
1: And I, I was, you know, I was a little disappointed that some of these, some of these people, I was like, you know, I know you're from like the coast, but like, you got to know, you got to know your geography, you know? You're like,
3: like, Hey, these are some of the smartest people yeah. in, this, in the room, in I the need world, you to know where the middle where, of America, is. know where
1: Omaha is. Not many people had been to Omaha or Nebraska or anywhere in the middle of America.
0: Let's keep it that way. <laughs> it's the best kept secret.
1: <laughs> keep our secrets around here. Um, yeah, so anyway, uh, that's. I, I hope that helps you understand a little bit the work of cultural apologetics. And um, I'm hopeful that we can use this podcast a little bit to talk about some of these things, especially some of the books that some of my fellow fellows will be working on and writing, I think will be helpful to most Christians. One of the things I appreciate about the people in the room is that most of them are very good popularizers. So though some of them are academics, they write, accessible books they're not like dense and so part of the work that we want to do together is just to say all right there's you know it's the same stuff we appreciate about people like Jamie Smith or you know people that can take really dense philosophy and say hey here's here it is for the common person Mm, and so I'm hopeful that more of that yeah hopeful that as as some of those works um, come forth that we'll be able to talk about them and recommend them on this podcast I do think that the average Christian everywhere needs to value the work of apologetics and just understanding what is the culture saying to me to my kids to my neighbors how does the gospel subvert that complete that contradict that and uh, how can we become just good evangelists um, as we pay attention to those things
0: the goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission so if you're a Christian or church leader in another context We thank you for listening in, and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners, so if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.